Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. I'll be reading verses 15 through 19. <clears throat> Isaiah 57, beginning at verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. What a beautiful promise this is for all backsliders. In verse 17, we have the very word mentioned here, backsliding in the way of his heart. This is actually an overwhelming promise for everyone who was afar off from the Lord. Those who were saved, especially, this promise is given. My topic today is the existential crisis, the final step in backsliding. This is the sixth message in a series on hope for backsliders. Backsliders need hope because their days are filled with guilt trips. And in this, in, in the fifth message, the one prior to this one, I subtitled it Coming Out of the Wilderness. We studied the beginning process of returning to the Lord from a place of spiritual complacency lukewarmness, and temporary uh, temporary fellowship with God that has been, uh, or fellowship with God rather, excuse me, that has been temporarily broken because of sin. Now by way of reminder, I have defined backsliding as relapsing into bad behavior, bad ways, relapsing into error. Backsliding is a process where a true Christian reverts to some degree to pre-conversion habits or lapses or falls into sin. A backslider is, is not an unsaved person because if you're unsaved, you can't backslide. You're already in a place of total depravity and enslaved to sin permanently until God saves that individual. So backsliding only applies to true Christians. 
And backsliding is moving away from Christ rather than toward him. And a backslider is a believer who's going in the wrong direction, who's going backwards spiritually instead of forwards. He is regressing rather than progressing. The backslider had at one time demonstrated a commitment to Christ or maintained a certain standard of behavior, but he has since reverted to some degree to old ways, although he has not completely gone into it, denying Christ and being immersed totally into the old life. God has preserved a witness, even if it's a faint witness, in his or her heart of his ownership of that believer, of the believer's responsibility to the Lord. God will not leave a backslidden believer without a witness because God is a jealous God. And when he saves someone, he keeps that person, even though sometimes we feel like we're scarcely saved. Now, I want to talk about the title of the message, Existential Crisis, the Final Step in Backsliding. Now, somebody may ask, what's in a title? Well, there's a lot in a title. A title represents your topic, your main theme. A title can prepare your mind and awaken your curiosity on what you're about to hear. It can get the mental juices flowing. And that's what we want. We want people to think about the Word of God. God doesn't circumvent the intellect and the mind when His Word is taught. He wants us to understand what we believe. He wants us to understand why we believe it. So my title then says a lot about what I'm about to say. Let's look at it for a second. I titled it The Existential Crisis. I chose each word deliberately. This means a crisis of existence. That's where we get the word existential from. Existence. That which comes from ex the experience of existence. Or we could say it this way, the experience of life. Because you have to be alive to exist, to relate to things existential. You have to be alive. And so life, or being alive, is the underlying assumptions, assumption to everything existential. Because there's no existence without life. In other words, for the Christian, existentialism is all about life. And as a professing Christian, and as a member of the church, if your life is not there, if the life of God is not in you, if you're not born again, and if even if you are born again, if your life in Christ is not being sustained and growing and renewed and rejuvenated, then you and I are in an existential crisis. Because Christianity is all about life. So when I say the existential crisis, I'm talking about a crisis of life. Because the essence of Christianity is bound up in the life of Christ. Just like the fruit depends on the branch being alive, and just like the branch 
depends on it being attached to the vine to being alive, which, of course, is the metaphor the Lord gives us about existential Christianity. In John chapter 15, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit is dead. It's cut off the vine and cast into the fire. So Christianity is all about life in Jesus Christ and being attached to him and having our life, spiritual life, renewed in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't the Bible talk about Christianity in a core sense being defined as Christ in you? That is the life of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Doesn't Paul say in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives inside me. And so this livingness about Christianity, Christ in you, Christ lives in me, is really the highest existential issue that we face as Christians. So when we talk about backsliding, getting back to backsliding, Backsliding occurs when the life of Christ in us diminishes. And the greatest influence, listen, the greatest influence upon backsliding is sin that is not dealt with on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. That is the greatest threat, the greatest existential threat to you and I as true Christians. It is not dealing with sin on an hour-by-hour, day-to-day basis because there's a thousand traps and snares to fall into that can initiate backsliding and the life of Christ diminishing inside of us. And we need to be aware of that. But for the Christian, in his death on the cross, Christ has provided a death blow to sin, resulting in justification and sanctification. So through Christ, we have the ability, through his death on the cross in sanctification, to kill sin and its temptations and its influences upon us. Through Christ and in Christ and the renewed day-by-day life He restores in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, he's given us the ability to kill the influences, temptations, and power of sin. Remember, as Christians, we've been delivered from the guilt and power of sin. And that's what God says in Romans 6. Turn to Romans 6 quickly, quickly. Get your Bibles out, quickly. Romans 6, turn to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Whenever a Christian has an existential crisis, that is when the life of God in him or her decreases, there should be bells and whistles and red flags in his or her life. Because the witness of the Spirit will always lead us to remember that when we became a Christian, 
when we identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, when we were baptized, that baptism teaches us, spiritually speaking, that Christ killed the enslaving effects of sin. That in our identification with Christ, in us, in a sense, being crucified with him, he provided the power and the grace to keep sin's influence as an enslaving force to sweep back over us and bring us back under total and complete bondage to sin. And in verse 11 of the same chapter of Romans 6, look at it. See it with your own eyes. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that word alive or life. It's the existential issue again. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lusts. You don't have to allow sin back in to control and dominate and guide your life any longer. Listen, wake up, wake up, listen. Our greatest enemy is sin, not the devil and not the world. They're enemies, but our greatest enemy is this omnipresent evil that is ready to come back in, to pour back in and get control. Verse 12, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it get control. Don't let it dominate you that you should obey it in its lust. But Pastor Joe, I'm so weak. And when it comes to sin, I've been told that it's optional whether I keep it at bay. Christ can be my savior, can he, without being my Lord? No. The power of God within us, though it may be temporarily weakened and greatly weakened, demands through the witness and power of the Holy Spirit us coming back under the control and servanthood of Christ, demands that Christ's life being poured out afresh within us because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he says in verse 13, present yourselves to God being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What does verse 14 say? For sin shall not have dominion over you. Say that with me. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. When Christ saved us, he broke the back of sin. We still struggle. We still have the presence of sin in us. And he's depicted that his sin is depicted as the old man. But we also have his counterpart, the new man in Christ Jesus. And the new man is always restoring life where it grows weak. Now, let's look at the subtitle, the final step in backsliding. The existential crisis Subtitle, the final step in backsliding. What do I mean when I say the final step in backsliding? What's the final step? 
Well, it's returning to the Lord. There's a point in backsliding where you really can't go any further. And the Lord in mercy remembers his covenant, his decree, that he will save his people from their what? Sins. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? One of the most predominant, preeminent titles and functions of the Lamb of God is not only to save initially his people from their sins, but to continue to save them from their sins, overwhelming them, enveloping them, controlling them during the Christian process of maturing and growing into the image of Christ. I will save my people from their sins. And so the final step is when we reach that place where we are at the bottom looking up, when we're miserable spiritually and we can't do it anymore, this hypocrisy thing. We can't do that anymore. Our conscience will not let us. The voice inside of my head is growing louder and louder with each and every sin. And I know behind that voice is the pathos and compassion of a loving, merciful God who will not allow me to completely drown in my pitiful misery of sin. And so the final step is where God steps in and takes control and relieves us of this paralysis that has held us down and opens up for, under, for us to understand something of the pathology of backsliding and what a fool I've been to turn my life over to sin for a second, much less for a day or a month or a year in that similar place that King David was in. And we're going to look at King David in a second because he's the classic example of a believer who went through the cycle of backsliding and returning to God. And in the end, there's a message of hope in this because as great as David's sin was, and it's been very, very rare throughout the history of the Christian church and the history of redemption in general, not just going back 2,000 years to the establishment of the church, but going back 6,000 years to the beginning of the history of redemption in Adam, that there's been a believer who committed murder and adultery. Very rare sins to commit for believers. But look at the path back. Look at the existential crisis that David went through. Can you imagine that weighing on his conscience? Murder? And Uriah the Hittite, the victim, was a believer. And his wife, he committed adultery with her with Uriah's wife. But look at David's plight. He was forgiven and he was restored. And that's what Isaiah 57, 15 through 18 is all about. 
the restoration process of a believer returning to God from backsliding. That's our text. And so the final step in backsliding is returning to God. It's the renewal of life through the rejuvenation of the Holy Spirit in us. Can you imagine how distasteful and sickening it is for God to observe a backslidden believer and think to himself, my spirit is in him or her, and my spirit is being defiled right now because of their sin and their refusal to repent of their sin. But in great love, in unimaginable mercy and, and grace, God doesn't just sweep in and remove his spirit, wipe the dust off his feet, and go his way for the rest of our lives. And say, as Moses said to God in the mountain when he was, when he was praying, Lord, do you want to call down fire on these wicked people, Israel, and then create a whole new people? God said, no. No. Think about the mercy of God. And you should hesitate the next time you come into a backslidden condition how God feels and how God thinks about your situation. Because remember the metaphor God uses of his church, the metaphor of marriage. You are the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. You are married. You are a married person. You say, Pastor Joe, I'm single. I haven't gotten married yet. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. Christ is the groom. And think about how many times we've committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. We've been immoral as a church spiritually, yet he has not forsaken us. He has not divorced us. He has not wiped the map of us and created somebody else and said, okay, you're going to take his place. You're going to take her place. No. What love? What love? And not only do we sin against God in general when we're backslidden, but we sin against love and the highest form of love, agape love, a love at a point in a backslidden believer where it, the love on the believer's part is not being returned. And this means that God's the only one doing the loving unilaterally. And to sin against that is the greater sin. Let's remember that the next time we wake up in the morning and justify our abandonment of the means of grace, reading the Bible, praying, confessing our sins, returning to the Lord, renewing our marriage vows with him, seeking for anything that is immoral that would keep me from a guilty feeling of hypocrisy when I worship the Lord in the morning and tell him, Lord, you know I love you. I love you. And so... The, the final step in backsliding is reaching that dead end where God steps in, turns us around, and puts our feet back on the path of holiness and repentance and re restoring our marriage vows. Because remember, the promise of the Lord in John 7 and verse 38, where when we are renewed from a place of backsliding, there's this resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that comes back in. This objective awakening that we sense 
life is flooding back in. There's this fresh awareness and awakening to the things of God which completely change in our estimation of them where previously while backslidden, they only cause guilt. But now, after repentance, I'm finding that I'm delighting in the law of God after the inward man again. So that when I hear the word, when I read the word, there's no guilt, there's joy, there's delight, there's spiritual nourishment in my heart. Oh, I'm brought back into a place of freedom and liberty where God's grace allows me to cast off the guilt, cast off the works of darkness, cast off the chains of limitation that keeps me in a realm of guilt. Now, all of that is evaporated by the grace of God and the power, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. And everything spiritual, everything Christian, has been freshly infused with life in it. And I, I'm able to come out of an existential crisis that has, that has dominated me. And I'm able to begin this final step, which is the way home, the way back. Now, if you're a believer here today, let me pause here and make an application. Can you identify with what I've just described Spiritually speaking, in your heart, in your Christian experience, in your understanding of what holiness and sanctification and the Christian life is in the Bible's definition of it, can you identify with it experientially in your experience? If so, then that's very encouraging. That, that is to remind you that the same God who brought you back from 10,000 near shipwrecks of faith is the same God who's going to keep you and continue to bring you back and put your feet on that path, that narrow road, which leads to life. Life. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will keep his promise in John 7, where Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. That promise of God in John 4, where he said, But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto eternal life. The filling and refilling of the Holy Spirit is depicted in Scripture as a fountain, as a geyser that comes back in. And when it comes back in, it is irrepressible. You can't suppress it. It is so powerful that the joy of the Lord will overflow. You will spontaneously praise God. The reminder of all of his goodness and patience and loving kindness and toleration for who we are in our sins will flood back in. And people will look at us and respond either in their thoughts or with words, this person's crazy. But how else can you depict a geyser that has come back in and taken control of my life? Lord, give me a million geysers for the rest of my life. 
The return of the Holy Spirit in power is the final stage of the return from backsliding. And it's typified, this process, by promises of renewal in the Bible. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. Oh, my friend, if you're a backslidden believer and there's been little or no nourishment for weeks and months and years and your spiritual life is defined as dry ground, a parched wilderness, where not even a little bud of life has sprung up, God promises he will pour floods on the dry ground. He will give water to him who is thirsty. That water is the Holy Spirit. And he says in Psalm 107.35 that he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. And truly we become an oasis in the desert when the Holy Spirit's there. And he will once again reconstruct and build the temple and tabernacle of our spiritual lives in the wilderness. We will again be that temple that is filled by the Holy Spirit, a vessel of the Holy Spirit. Now, returning to God from the wilderness, the wilderness of sin or backsliding is described in the Bible in four steps. In many cases, there's four stages of returning to the Lord, the final stage of backsliding, which is really the only positive stage of the process. And I define each stage as a crisis because each stage has a powerful impact upon the soul. And each stage is discernible by the wisdom of the Spirit in us. We're able to discern the crisis of realization, the crisis of transition, the crisis of repentance, and number four, the ultimate crisis. This is all in your handout, your sermon notes. And the remaining minutes, I want to try to describe as many of these four existential crises in this last final stage of returning from backsliding. There are three passages of Scripture that I'll be using. If I don't finish them today, we'll finish them next time, God willing. Three passages of scripture that stand out to me in studying for this message during the return process. But I, I want to go through the whole process so that you can identify what takes place when you return from backsliding and what actually takes place during the actual backsliding itself. Many believers have all kinds of raw feelings and thoughts and sketchy and nebulous ideas when they're backslidden. But because their un spiritual understanding and their spiritual intellect is so weak, they're not able to identify what's really going on in their lives. And they're just carried along in temptation of Satan. They're just swept about, tossed to and fro, trying to understand what's going on with me. I got saved five years ago. I got saved 20 years ago. I got saved 40 years ago. And I don't understand how I go through this cycle and never get victory and are never for long periods of time able to dominate the old man by the supremacy 
and the fresh power of the new man. So I'll be using these passages of scripture to describe the process of being reconciled to God from a place of backsliding. backsliding. And these passages of scripture are put in the Bible for a reason. God wants us to know what's going on with us instead of us just doubting and wondering why am I going through all of these psychopathic mind games? I'm just going to give up and I'm going to embrace the false teaching that I can be saved but not walk with the power of God in keeping sin at bay for any length of time. You see, listen, by examining the process of how we return from backsliding, we understand the importance and the urgency of restoring fellowship with God. If we don't understand what's going on, we'll be passive, not proactive, but slow to restore. By studying how we backslide and how we return from it, we learn to identify even the smallest decline of life in our soul. And this initial stage is the most crucial. This initial stage when backsliding begins is the critical stage because if you don't know what's going on, you're not going to identify the beginning of backsliding before it builds up much momentum, takes control in a way where you feel helpless and unable to do anything and builds up so much momentum in you that you get so discouraged and depressed because of sin coming back in that you just give up. Because not only do you not know what's going on, you don't know how to remedy the situation. And so the first stage is the crisis of realization. David, King David, the psalmist, is a good example. Because he represents the believer who goes through the stages which are clearly discernible in David's case. As I suggested, after committing murder and adultery, that is King David, many theologians estimate that David was backslidden as much as three to five years after he committed murder, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, can you imagine yourself having committed a murder, committed adultery, and the misery you're in for one day, let alone five years before it's dealt with. Whether it's one year or five years or 10 years. God will not allow a true believer to stay in that condition without repentance. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the first stage in the process of returning to God from a place of backsliding is what I call the crisis of realization. Here is David. He doesn't realize what's going on spiritually in his life. Here's a man who wrote most of the Psalms. And if you know anything about the Bible, 
The book of Psalms is placed in a four-book section in the Old Testament called what? The Wisdom Books, along with two other books that his son Solomon wrote. Three other books, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Proverbs. Along, along with Psalms is the four wisdom books. David wrote most of the Psalms. There were five or six authors of the Psalms, but he, would, he wrote more than a hundred of them. In other words, he was given so much wisdom from God and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit had so much knowledge from the Lord, yet, yet, with all his wisdom and knowledge and sensitivity to God because he was called a man after God's own heart. So he not only had this extremely expanded understanding and intellect and mentally about doctrine and about who God is in, the, in terms of understanding the nature of God, but also in experience, he sought God's heart relentlessly. He loved God. He worshiped God in a way that was more fuller in experience than most other believers. Yet, the potential for sin to come back in and dominate his life was enormous. Not only that, sin has a component to it that enables that enables the believer to live in a place of dualism and hypocrisy. In other words, sin is so deceitful, it can convince a believer to be backslidden and stay that way for years. And not see the heinousness of his sin in a way that he should, that would precipitate repentance. Let's start at verse 1 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. I want you to listen very carefully as I read. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is after this long period of backsliding. David is backslidden. He's in that condition right now. And it's been a long time in that condition. Who takes the initiative to wake David up? God does. God has to. Yeah. David is not coming to his own spiritual senses on his own. So what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, and tells him a story. He doesn't just come out and say, you wicked murderer. He just tells him a story. Here's the story. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man has exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, 
as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed you have, uh, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. There's so much here in this text. This is a very instructive passage of scripture for many reasons, but especially in alerting and teaching us about backsliding. And many of the effects of backsliding, such as forgetfulness, blindness, and the deceitfulness of sin. And this passage instructs us on how low a spiritual condition of a Christian can get and can fall into. And that's why the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. David's resume before he committed murder and adultery was very great. But his credentials as a godly man did not help or prevent him from falling into this heinous sin. The Bible says again in 1 Corinthians, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. With all David's knowledge, the psalmist, he wrote pretty much a wisdom book. He did not know how deceitful sin is that would in his life he didn't have the fresh memory or experience or understanding about the exceeding deceitfulness of sin to guard against backsliding on a level that would cause him to sin in this way. I dare say that some of you in your skeleton closet have committed sins that still haunt you to this day, requiring the Holy Spirit to come in and remind you, don't worry, you are saved. 
Your sins are forgiven. You will not die. But you will be chastised in this way or that way or the other way. Brethren, we can't play with God. We are called to a supernatural walk with Him. We are called to a spiritual ministry that if we are faithful, will cause miracles to happen in people's lives as God, as God works in us and through us. Miracles like salvation in other people's lives. Miracles like God providing through the use of our spiritual gifts things to take place that will impact believers and others, causing them to praise God and bring forth spiritual fruit redounding to His glory. And when we depart as vessels of the Holy Spirit being used of God in these ways and go outside the orbit, not only of his spiritual protection, but usefulness into a realm where sin dominates again. Sin and the things of the spirit do not mix. They're like oil and water. They will naturally separate from one another. And so we can't play church. We can't play Christianity. If we're born again, God is going to catch up to us and say, you're a Christian? You better go back to that land of safety where total dependence upon me and total surrender of your inner man to me is what regulates your life as a Christian. Because sooner or later, there's going to be this painful rod that's going to catch up to you to remind you, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and the flesh. You cannot serve God and material things. You cannot do both if you would be a servant of the Lord. King David finally came to the crisis of realization, the first step in the way back. God sent Nathan, told him, you are the man. It wasn't that David wasn't religious. David still had pretty strong convictions left. He wanted to kill that rich man who took away the little baby lamb from this poor guy. How dare he do that? I'm going to use my authority and my power as king of Israel, and I'm going to come down hard on this immoral person. Those who are backslidden live in a realm of superficiality and shallowness that they don't realize that they are the man. Our spiritual discernment and, and depth of understanding evaporates quickly the layers of acute insight into the things of God go away so that there are passages of Scripture that define the backslidden Christian. As Hebrews chapter 5 says, he says to, the, to these 
believers, these Hebrew Christians who got saved, but many of them are backslidden. Many of them have denied Christ and gone back to their former life. And he says to them in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You're so superficial in your religious life that not only do you need meat, you need milk. You can't even handle milk. You've lost spiritual discernment on a level where you forgot the a, your ABCs. How many of you know the English alphabet? All of you do. You can, you can quote all 26 letters and vowels. But these Christians even forgot that. And he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses, their spiritual senses, exercised to discern both good and evil. And so the beginning stage of backsliding the lack of realization of the sin that's dominating our life. It really didn't start there. It started before then, when the believer stopped reading and meditating on the Word of God, when the believer stopped praying consistently daily, when the believer stopped coming under the outward means of grace, the searching, preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word to provide both the light of truth that needs to penetrate to the core of the inner man so that the layers of superficiality and discernment are stripped away and we're able to see ourselves as God sees us from the crown of our head to the sole of our feet where light is blazing in and we're able to understand everything that's going on in my life spiritually. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing from the piercing even to... Uh, Piercing to the, uh, the, the, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. The word of God goes to where soul and spirit are, where they divide in the spiritual man. No one knows where that realm is, but we do know it's at the very core and center of your spiritual being. The word of God is so sharp and powerful. It goes to the very core of your being and of joints and marrow. That's a physical metaphor. Joints, your body is the metaphor. What is the marrow? I had a bone marrow transplant three and a half years ago. My doctor said, do you know what the bone marrow does? It produces your blood. And without healthy bone marrow, you're not going to have healthy blood. That's why, Joe, you have leukemia. That's why you have 
cancer of the blood. So there's no sense draining your blood and replacing it with a transfusion of someone else's blood because it's your marrow that's producing bad blood filled with cancer. We've got to take out the marrow and replace the marrow. We've got to get, and the bone marrow is the center of your body. Your bones are the center, right? But your marrow is inside your bones. And they've got to get to the real center of your body, which is where the marrow is, and replace that. And that's what they did. And I have all new bone marrow, and therefore all new blood. I went from a blood type called negative AB, and I have a brand new blood type. I have the donor's blood type who donated the marrow. I have O positive blood. I'm not the same person I was. And the same thing is true spiritually. When you dive back into the Word of God, the Word of God penetrates to your spiritual man and gives you a transfusion from heaven, throwing out all the bad spiritual blood and flooding back in the life of God. So that what? So that you can see yourself as God sees you. You can discern when the backsliding starts. You can receive immediate realization when sin is trying to wiggle its way back into your life again. You can see it quickly and prevent, prevent it from overwhelming you and bringing you back to a place of surrendering Christ who has been on the throne of your life and your heart. So as I close, and we'll pick up where we left off next time, we're still in realization. I pray that this first point will remind some of you of what some already know, some things you already know, but will help you realize how dangerous and how urgent it is in dealing with sin. Sin is not a secondary passive issue where when we have time, we'll take that issue off the shelf and deal with it. We never remain passive or indifferent when it comes to sin because it is remaining indwelling sin that brings us back to a place where it robs us of the dominating, regulating, controlling life of God in us. You don't have to give up the rulership of Christ on the throne of your hearts. You're Christians. Christ owns you, not sin any longer. You've given your life to Christ. He owns you. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's a description of the return, the final stage, the return from a wilderness of backsliding, 
the dry, parched deadness of the backslidden life into back into the land of the living, the promised land, a land filled with the promises of Christ to keep us, to feed us, to shepherd us, to guide us, to give us hope. He gives us fulfillment in the deepest recesses of our heart that nothing of this world can give. So, my brother, my sister, if you're a Christian today, come back. Come back. If you need to come back, come back. Come back out of the wilderness. If you may only be a few feet into the wilderness, right next to the border between the wilderness of sin and the land of the living, even if you're only one or two feet into that border of the deadness of the wilderness of sin, come back in. But if you're miles and miles, hundreds of miles deep into the territory of sin, we're all around, there's no greenery, there's no trees, there's no life, just parched, dry ground, cracks everywhere, no bushes, no fruit trees, no life. All you need do is not run back. All you need do is turn back and look unto Christ. Look to Christ, the restorer and healer of his people. And just like he's done many times before, he will come back into your life and he will pour floods upon the dry ground of our hearts. The times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Trust in him. He has never let me down in 48 years of being a Christian. Not one time when I turn to him in a place of weakness or backsliding, when I turn to him and I trust in him, I let go of anything I've been relying upon of this life and I just let go my all to him and trust only in him. Pray and believe and repent and trust. And based on his promise and his love, he returns. He returns. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love to each of your people and your faithfulness to your promises to strengthen us, to keep us, and to lead us, to restore comforts to us. For you cannot deny yourself and your own word. But even more so, Lord, because you love us as a great shepherd loves the sheep and you laid your life down for us. And you who saved us will continue to perform and complete this work of salvation in us until we stand before you face to face. Bless you, Lord. Have mercy upon that wandering soul who is neither happy in sin nor happy with you because they're halting between two opinions. Oh, give them a fresh hatred and loathing for their sin. Open eyes that they may see. Open the eyes of the heart and bring them back, your sheep, your people, whoever it may be, into that land of the living where they will have all their happiness in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.